If you would take your Bibles and go to Acts 19. Acts 19, we'll be considering, at least our text that we're considering is on page 588 in the latter part of Acts 19. So 588, if you're using one of the black Bibles that are provided there, we invite you to open to that passage. And we'll read Acts 19, verses 21 through 41. We'll read it in sections as we comment on the text this morning. Acts chapter 19 in your Bibles, our text this morning is is verses 21 through the end of the chapter. Let's pause for a moment and ask for God's help as we look at this passage of Scripture. Our Lord, we are thankful that you have revealed yourself in your word. We have no means of knowing you without your own revelation. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look into your word this morning, that it would be the mirror that it is to be for us, that we may go away from this text of Scripture, having taken it to heart, having changed because of it through the strength of your Spirit. We pray these things in your Son's precious name. Amen. True revival transforms the lives of those that it touches. And because of that, if many people are, are transformed by the gospel, it will be seen. There's a little town in, a little coal mining town in the hills of central Pennsylvania called, I guess it's pronounced Shamokin, S-H-A-M-O-K-I-N. Somebody's been there, maybe you know how to better pronounce it than I do. This little town nestled in the hills, was visited by an evangelist named W.P. Nicholson. He was from Northern Ireland. And he preached a series of meetings a number of years ago into that little town that was tucked away in the hills. And God's word went out, and the gospel was powerful, and many, many people were converted. Bars were shut down. Uh, The vices that were practiced during the night dried up. The, the town was, and for many, many years afterward, if you use the word revival, everyone knew what you were talking about. That time when God did a miraculous work in that little town. That story can be repeated numbers of times over as God has done a work in a place and everything changed in that place. We are in the midst of a text in Acts 19 where we see revival. This city of Ephesus had experienced a marvelous working of God. The the word had gone out. The Spirit had made it effective. People came to faith in Christ and lives were changed. We saw that in the preceding weeks here in Acts 19 as we considered Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And we learned that because of what God did there, not only was Ephesus touched, but really all of Asia Minor was impacted through the teaching that was going forth from Ephesus. Well, from our text this morning, we learn that there's a, there's a problem that comes with revival. There's a problem that crops up when people are repentant. What is that problem? Well, it's the problem of opposition. Not everyone will like the fact that God's word is going forward. Certainly the enemy will wage war 
against the proliferation of God's Word and the conversion of souls. And so what we learn from our text this morning is that believers can expect God's providential care to provide peace in the face of persecution. Believers can expect God's providential care to provide peace in the face of persecution. We're in the midst of this revival in the city of Ephesus. We've seen that the revival took place for a couple of reasons. First of all, because of faithful teaching, right? We saw Paul go into the synagogue and teach faithfully for a number of months before the message was rejected, and then he went to, to rent this lecture hall from one of, one of the philosophers of the area, Tyrannus. He begins teaching, and for two years, people would come every afternoon to learn about God's Word, to learn about the message of Jesus. And from there, the, the impact was so profound that all of Asia Minor heard the Word of the Lord because of what was happening in the city of Ephesus. And so the, the revival took place because of faithful teaching that was followed then by genuine repentance. You remember this from last week's text? Those who were being saved were bringing their books of magic and they were throwing them on this burn pile. They were so serious about being followers of Jesus that they left in the dust their previous way of life. That's what genuine repentance looks like. When someone turns to Christ, the attitude must be, the attitude that we must call people to is that I want Jesus and nothing else matters. I'll give up whatever I have to to be a follower of Jesus. This is what the message of Jesus calls us to. And clearly, many in that city got the message loud and clear. And so as they turned to Christ, they also turned away from their witchcraft, from their idolatry, from their black magic, and they burned the accoutrements of their former way of life. So this this uh, faithful teaching then resulted in genuine repentance, so there was a revival in the city. But we said before that there becomes a problem that crops up when revival takes place. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. I mean, these are things that we should expect. So what, we should, what should we expect? Well, we first of all should expect that persecution will arise in the wake of gospel effectiveness. You and I, believer, this morning should, should expect that when people are being saved, when people are growing in Christ, when their lives are being transformed, when they are being changed, that persecution will arise, that opposition will arise because the enemy hates that. Now, let me say specifically that there are two things throughout human history that have routinely been set up as gods that you better not mess with. If, unless you want some serious trouble, right? And we actually see both of these in this text. I mean, your religion can ask for a lot, but if you, if you touch on these two things, if your God makes demands on these two things, society throughout human history will fight you. And here's what we see in Ephesus, that these two things are money and sex. These are the two things that you may not go against. Notice with me verse 24. A certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, 
brought no small profit to the craftsmen. All right, you see what's happening here? This is a man that makes little images of Diana. He is in the business of producing goods that support the worship of Diana. Now, we, what we talked about um, this, this cult last week, the cult of, of Diana, Artemis would be uh, the Greek name. Uh, so, so here is this silversmith who is making little silver statues. And it says in verse 24, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. So it wasn't just him that was getting rich off of this. There were many. And so what does he do in verse 25? He called them together with the workers of similar occupation. He sends out a little email. Um, All right. Uh, There will be a meeting of the local 3026 Silversmiths Union at such and such a time. Maybe not quite that detail. But right, they all came together. So the Silversmiths Union is now gathering. And they're saying, we have a problem. And the problem is that this gospel message, I mean, That's fine if you want to preach about this Jesus and all, but don't mess with our bottom line. I mean, that's that's what he's saying, right? Verse 25, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. We're getting rich off of this. This We got a good thing going. And verse 26, moreover, you see in here that not only at Ephesus, but throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. They didn't like Paul's theology because it messed with their bottom line. I mean, they're not, they're not interacting with him at a theological level. They're not saying, well, the evidence of the genuineness of the worship of Diana is. They're like, this makes us mad because you're messing with our wealth here. Verse 27, and not only is this trade ours in danger of falling in disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised her magnificence destroyed. I think that's interesting. How can you destroy the magnificence if a God is true, if a God is genuine? Yet he says her magnificence is threatened with all throughout Asia. And so verse 28, they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. May I just surprise you with the announcement that America is a materialistic society? I I know that that comes as a shock. But America, one of the, the wealthiest countries throughout civilization, worships at the altar of materialism. And your God can demand a lot of things. But nothing will be more offensive than your God demanding access to your wallet. People will say, all they preach about at church is giving. Actually, most churches don't really preach about giving that much. But that's the point that when you touch it, it's very sensitive. When you have a God that puts demands on, you know, well, I, I, can put, I can put in my token couple of hours as I go for worship on Sunday morning, but don't you ask me to give, what? What, a, a tenth of my income? Are you crazy? We get very touchy. We get very sensitive when a God starts putting demands on our money. And may I just say further, as we understand the concept of stewardship biblically, it's not that God just puts demands on the tenth. 
It's that God is to rule. He is to, he is to be the one who all things own, uh, owns all things that we are given stewardship of. And no matter whether I'm spending it on a hamburger or whether I'm putting it in the offering plate, I better be thinking about wisely stewarding everything that God has given me because he is the giver and I am merely the caretaker of his wealth that he has blessed me with. Well, that's an even higher demand. And that is a message that is offensive. But may we as Christians remember that, that Jesus, the, the service of Jesus, the following of Jesus, our loyalty to Christ is not limited to isolated little islands of our life. Christ calls for lordship over all. And that includes the way we steward our finances. We ought to give serious thought to the way we spend our money. We ought to give serious thought to the way we make our money. Now, I don't know who this applies to, but there may come a day when you are offered an opportunity. An opportunity for, for a job that will, that will produce tremendous wealth. Yet, can you do it in good conscience? Can you do it and be right before God? Well, it's legal. There are many things that are legal that Christians ought not be producing their income through. We, we sometimes have the notion, we have the mentality, well, I can do anything, right? That's what the world tells us. You can do anything you set your mind to. No, actually, as believers, because Christ is the Lord of my life, there are certain things that I can't do. Because Christ puts demands. And as the Lord of my life, I must not. Well, clearly, the gospel message had resonated. It had reached the hearts of many in the city. And so now they're getting rid of their idols. They're not buying new idols. And this is putting an impact on the local economy. Isn't it interesting that our world uh, puts you know, economic considerations so high on the priority list? Even, I mean, do you listen to, listen to the banter around election time? Yeah, moral issues, meh, no big deal. Economic issues, ah, now we're on to something. For Christians, it should be the reverse. And so there's much application. There's much similar to the city of Ephesus, to the day and age which we live in, because Americans worship our money. But Americans also worship sex, don't they? I mean, if Ephesus was the epicenter of a sex cult. Diana, Artemis, uh, was a, a pagan, ritualistic um, practice that was a profligate uh, swim in the cesspool. Demetrius, by the way, didn't have trouble gathering people from all over the region together uh, gathering a large crowd because actually at this time of the year they were celebrating the festival of Artemis which was a month-long celebration of debauchery. And in fact, people would come from all over Asia Minor to, to participate in this giant frat party. And even secular historians record for us the debauchery that would take place during the festival of Artemis. So right in the thick of this, 
He's gathering together a crowd and saying, this is a problem. Well, the cult of Diana is still alive and well today. There is perhaps no cult more prevalent and increasing in strength in American society than the worship of the God of sexual liberty. And the highest blasphemy in America is what? Venturing to say that someone's sexual practices are sin. And that is the the highest blasphemy that you can utter in our society right now. The cult even has its own temples of child sacrifice called abortion clinics. It is really the cult of of self-autonomy. You will not tell me what I can do and what I can't do. No God will tell me what I do, what I can do and what I can't do. So the cult of Diana is alive and well. Well, what happens when the gospel intersects with, when it, when it bumps up against, when it goes head to head with the cult of money and sex? Well, that's what we see happening in this text. Might we think that that could happen in our society too? In July of 2013, I stood in this pulpit and I cited a Supreme Court decision that had happened the month before in June of 2013. The U.S. Supreme Court in 2013 handed down a decision that called the biblical view of human sexuality and marriage motivated by a desire to injure, Supreme Court's own words, demean and humiliate. In 2013, Justice Scalia wrote the dissenting opinion to a watershed case. He called the majority opinion, quote, jaw-dropping to a judge that those opposing same-sex marriage are Latin enemies of the human race. Justice Scalia noted in 2013 in his dissenting opinion, as far as this court is concerned, no one should be fooled. It's just a matter of listening and waiting for the other shoe to drop. A chilling prophecy from one of our own Supreme Court justices. Ladies and gentlemen, may I just tell you, the other shoe dropped. Last month, just weeks, actually this month, just weeks ago, in a 6-3 to three ruling, many of you, if you keep up with the news, you know what's happened, handed down a ruling that said that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex, that it by extension protects gay and transgender individuals in issues related to their sexual orientation. In other words, it is now the law of the land that it is illegal to discriminate against someone for their sexual identity, just like it is illegal to discriminate against someone based on their race, religion, or several other categories that fit into the Civil Rights Act. All right? This will, unless barring some miraculous change of course in our country, this will inevitably lead to a clash between sexual liberty and religious liberty. I I see no way of avoiding this collision course. 
This will be probably the legal club with which biblical Christians will be beaten. So you say, well, pastor, are you worried? Actually, no, (laughs) I'm kind of not. I mean, this has been the way Christians have lived for centuries. We're the odd ones. Right? I mean, the last couple of year, last couple hundred years of American history is really the exception, not the rule. Our, our brothers and sisters in Christ for centuries have been living opposed to the way of the world. And so the Christian experience that I think that we are looking down the barrel of is probably a more normal Christian experience. And guess what? God has strengthened, God has continued to build his church. God has continued to to make the gospel strong even in the face of opposition. And so we should expect persecution. This is not a surprise. Didn't Jesus tell us this? John 15, if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If I were of the world, the world would hate its own. Yet because uh, the world would love its own, yet because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul reminds Timothy in 2 Timothy as he encourages him to be a contender for the faith. Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We should not be panic-stricken. We should be sober. We we should be wide-eyed about what is happening. But we must not be people who run around like chickens with their heads cut off. The sky is falling. God's church has persevered through much worse. And it will continue to. And point of fact, it might even have a purifying effect on the church. So while we should expect persecution, there's something else that we should expect, and that is we should expect peace in the face of persecution. Notice with me verse 29. The whole city was filled with confusion. The whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord. So they grabbed some of Paul's compatriots. The last part of verse 29. <laughs> watch, watch Paul. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't Paul make you laugh sometimes? In verse 30, Paul what? Paul wanted to do what? <laughs> yeah, he wanted to get in the middle of this mess. I mean, Paul. <laughs> now, why did Paul want to go? I don't know. The text doesn't say. But, you know, just knowing Paul like I do, he's like, dude, there's a crowd gathered. Let's go preach. <laughs> right? I mean... This is great. What an opportunity for the gospel. But, but more level heads prevailed. And the last part of verse 30, the disciples would not allow him to go. So his brothers and sisters in Christ said, Paul, can we just give you a little advice here? This might not be the time. We appreciate your passion for the gospel. All right. But let's be wise about this. Verse 31, some of the officials in Asia who were his friends sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Isn't this hilarious? I mean, Paul's not worried. There's a mob of thousands that are loaded for bear, man. They are ready to kill this guy. They're ready to tear him limb for limb. And Paul, what's Paul saying? Let's go preach. 
I appreciate zeal like that. I mean, I love it when people are passionate to give the gospel. I've, I've enjoyed watching Miles over the last week. Every time you have an, every time I turn around, like, Miles, what you doing? Get, oh, he's witnessing. Okay, we'll give him, we'll give him a minute. It's exciting to see. It's fun. We should all have that passion for the gospel. Oh, here's an opportunity to give the gospel. And I think that's Paul's attitude. And in fact, I think it's Paul's attitude because he understood that his times are in God's hands. He's not worried. He's at peace. Like it's the it's the idea that I'm I'm not I'm expendable, but but I'm nobody can hurt me until God's done with me. So there's also a balancing truth that's in this um, this passage as well that I find very interesting. I would say this: most times when Christians err on one side or the other. Well, let me, let me put out the balance here for you, right? So on the one hand, we have the reality that we should be wise. We should not do things that are foolish uh, when there's not a potential for gain. We shouldn't run into a situation where we put ourselves in danger, you know, blaming it on gospel witness when in reality there's, there's not much to be gained. We shouldn't be foolish. On the other hand, we have the reality that being on the front lines of the gospel is dangerous, I mean, the truth is that if, that if we are pushing the front lines, if we are venturing into uh, new territory with the gospel, that's a dangerous place to be at the tip of the spear. Well, you see this interesting balance here where in the judgment of the brothers and sisters in Ephesus, this was a situation where caution should be exercised. So I would say this. We mustn't fear what will befall us when we give the gospel. Even we should be willing to venture into hostile territory with the gospel. We should be willing to put ourselves in peril for the advancement of the gospel and know that advance, gospel advancement is dangerous activity. The spread of the gospel is a risky venture. By the same token, we do not need to take unnecessary risks if there is nothing to be gained for the gospel cause. So both prudence and boldness are important in global evangelism. Now, going back to what I started to say a moment ago and interrupted myself, I do think that if we as Christians err, it's generally on the side of caution. It's generally, if we err on one side or the other, it's generally self-preservation. And so most of us don't have the problem that Paul did. Most of us have the opposite problem. You know, Paul's like, I'm going to run in there and get ripped rip limb from limb while I'm preaching the gospel. Let's go. Um, I think probably most of us could use a healthy dose of that. But I think it is worth noting that there were times that, that Paul, you know, was lowered down from the wall in a basket to escape the mobs that were forming. There were times that the, the brothers and sisters in Christ um, who, who clearly were passionate about the gospel themselves, the brothers and sisters in Christ said, Paul, this might not be the time. Please don't go there. Right. Now, why is it that Paul could face persecution? Why is it that our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout history could face persecution and know the peace of God? They could expect the kind of peace that would, that would make them want to go into a crowd that was hostile against them. It was because of God's care. God's providential, pay, uh, God's providential care. 
Verse 35, the city clerk had quieted the crowd. He said, men of Ephesus, what is here who does not know that the city of Ephesus is the temple guardian for the great goddess Diana, the image which fell down from Zeus? That was the history that they believed concerning Diana. He encourages them in verse 36 not to do anything rashly. He reminds them in verse 37 that these men are not robbers of temples nor blasphemers against your goddess. Therefore, uh, let me go down to verse 40. For we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar. There being no reason for which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. All right? So they're under, under Roman rule. And if there is an uproar, they're going to have to give an answer for it. And so this authority comes in and reminds them that this gathering is disorderly. And watch this in verse 41. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. I mean, they'd been chanting for hours. Great is Diana of Ephesus. Their anger would not be assuaged. This was an angry crowd. And with a brief speech, the authority stands up and dismisses them. Now, I'm not talking about the, the peaceful riots, but, but just imagine for a moment. Uh, not, I'm talking about the peaceful protests. Just imagine for a moment some of, the, some of the more violent rioting that we've seen in recent days. You know, statues are being pulled down. Police cars are being burned. Um, uh, buildings are being assaulted. And uh, somebody steps up and says, all right, now listen, listen. Um, this gathering really isn't a good thing. We're going to have to give an account for this. And so um, you guys are dismissed. Go your way. <laughs> right? I mean, can you imagine that happening? That's what happens here in Acts 20. I mean, it's, it's bordering on the miraculous that this hostile crowd, a city authority stands up, he says some things that make sense to them, he dismisses the crowd. I see God's hand in this. Now, no matter how it had come out, whether Paul had lived or died, remember, Paul was eventually martyred. Whether Paul lived or died, God is in control. What is it that gives us fuel to be at peace right in the midst of the storm? It is the reality that God is in control. God's care, His providential control is that which provides us peace. Even in the midst of persecution. Romans 8.35 says it this way, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? None of these can separate us from the love of Christ. And that, my friend, is a place to be at peace. Even if things grow difficult, and they may. Even if the world opposes, and they will, even if we face the threat of persecution, and many who are observing our society think that's the case, we can be at peace. We can have joy. We can know that He is in complete control, and if we are following after Him, we can endure. Believers can expect God's providential care to provide peace in the face 
of persecution. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement that we gain from your word as we learn that others who have gone before us have been faithful even in the face of opposition. Lord, may we be encouraged by this example of how you orchestrated events in the city of Ephesus for your own glory and for our learning. I'm going to give you a moment to remain bowed before the Lord, to confess sin, and to apply the message of the Word to your own heart as we've heard it this morning.